Northwest Passage. So be prepared to come to the mic and ask some questions. Uh. Hello. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Um, my name is Bridget, pa- Bridget Pasteur. Um, what is the difference in price between going on the Russian ship and the other ship that um, you said was so expensive? And then the other, um, I think, comment I'd like to make is that if I did go up there, I have a 10-year-old granddaughter, so uh, maybe you'd like to bring your son and they wouldn't be quite so bored with all the ad- adults. <laughs> it was wonderful. Thanks so much. I think we should wait five or six years, then my son will be interested in your daughter, your granddaughter. <laughs> At the moment, he's allergic to girls. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, of the two ships I showed you, um, the, the first, the Admonson, um, is uh, by invitation only um, because it's a science ship. And uh, um, I, as a... As a project leader with ArcticNet, I've been on that ship a few times. I have the lowest possible priority of, of anyone who gets on because I don't actually need to collect data. Um, the, uh, the, the eco cruise, cruises, the expedition ships, um, uh, are, are open for anyone who, who can get a booking um, in early enough and is prepared to, to pay. Uh, the costs of, of Arctic travel are significant, um, you know, charter flights uh, over long distances. Um, you know, Resolute is, is what it's getting to be about uh, five hours north of Yellowknife. I mean, it's, you know, we're talking about big distances. Um, and then the, the costs of, of operating a specialized ship. So I think that if I recall the prices um, on the 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 cruise that I went on uh, for sharing a small cabin with another person were around seven thousand um, dollars. Food was good. Um, uh, the educational program, um, you know, obviously I'm biased, but but was 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 significant, and we did do um, shore expeditions with zodiacs uh, almost every day. We had we had two days of Arctic storm. Um, which, as I told all the passengers, was part of the experience, that if you go to the Arctic, you should see what it can be like. Um, everyone was seasick. Um, uh, that, that's just part of it, right? Uh, uh, phenomenal ship. Uh, the academic Yaffe was actually built for deep ocean research and has got stabilization equipment on board that, that, that's really quite extraordinary. Um, uh, the other thing to say is that there are different companies offering uh, cruises on different ships, uh, so uh, make sure you do your research. Um, I, I've been on a good cruise, and I've been on an excellent cruise, um, and, and there's a difference. And the final thing to say is that um, it, it's not without risk. Uh, the, the, the risk element is, is small, and uh, the, the cruise operators take safety very seriously, but you are operating in a, a very remote um, and extreme part of the world. So to give you an example, in August of 2010, the uh, Clipper Adventurer, which is operated by Adventure Canada, uh, went on to a rock uh, in Coronation Gulf um, at 13.9 knots, um, which was actually good in the end because they grounded themselves so firmly on the rock that 
although the ship had an 80-foot gash in its hull, it wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and the weather was good. And the Admonson, the Coast Guard icebreaker, was just two days away. And so everyone was safely rescued. Had they hit the rock sideways? Had there been a storm? Um, so, yeah, be aware. But worth it? Absolutely. Um, Michael, thank you very much for your presentation. Terry Shellington. <clears throat> um, we haven't talked about this uh, over the table or in your presentation, but, of course, major news this week uh, was the uh, shipbuilding contracts uh, handed out. And if I understand it rightly, the Arctic uh, component was given to BC uh, Industries. Um, do you have a comment on that from your perspective and your passions for the Arctic, uh, what the implications of... of uh, what the government has, has projected? Yeah. yeah, I thought that... Well, first thing to say is I thought that the media let the country down uh, the last week because they reported this horse race between the three different shipping yards when anyone who paid any attention knew that Halifax was going to get the big contract and Vancouver was going to get the smaller contract and Quebec wouldn't get anything because the shipyard isn't ready for a contract. They were in receivership until recently. So, so that was the it was a false story. And the question should be, you know, at this time um, with uh, deficits and cost reductions and all this, you know, is $35 billion for combat vessels absolutely necessary? I was watching O'Leary on, you know, CBC, whatever it's called, no, no, the other show he does, Lang and O'Leary, and he's going like, what the hell are we doing spending $35 billion on ships? I mean, those are the sorts of questions we should have been, been having uh, raised by journalists and not whether it was going to be Vancouver or Halifax. Um, that was just an aside. Nice to take a pot shot at the media from time to time. Um, and, and Shaw's not here anymore. It's tough being a journalist. Um, Shaw uh, is not here anymore. Um, but uh, the... On the issue of the Arctic ships, um, what happened there was somewhat unfortunate because um, six years ago, the government let it be known that there would be a budget for Arctic-capable vessels. And uh, the Department of National Defense is a very influential department in Ottawa, and the Canadian Coast Guard is not. And so DND shouldered in on the Arctic-capable ships, and... Uh, was assigned the Arctic-capable ships um, and has progressively reduced their Arctic um, specifications to the point where they're actually now Arctic-slash-offshore patrol vessels, and they will be most useful on the east or the west coast of Canada and marginally useful in the Arctic um, during the summer months at lower latitudes. And I only say this because, not because I have anything against DND, I think they do wonderful work, um, but the real need in the Arctic has been a total recapitalization of the Coast Guard icebreaker fleet. And the plan is to build one new icebreaker, the, the Diefenbaker, which leaves us still with five old vessels. And those vessels do phenomenal work. They're multipurpose platforms. They, they uh, break ice for commercial vessels. Um, they resupply um, uh, weather stations, a few northern communities, uh, they maintain navigation devices. Um, they uh, do search and rescue. They support Arctic science. They do anything that, that they need to do. Um, gray vessels with guns on the front do, do one thing. They're military presence. 
So I think that's the unfortunate aspect of it. Um, it will be nice to have new ships, undoubtedly for the Arctic, and maybe in five or ten years when we have a different government, we can paint those gray vessels red and give them to the Coast Guard. Let me just say and follow up to that while we're waiting. Um, there's been some talk about um, military threats in the Arctic, uh, concerns expressed about Russia. Anyone who, who believes um, politicians when they say there's a threat from Russia in the Arctic should read a WikiLeaks cable that was sent by the U.S. ambassador back to Washington uh, a little under two years ago reporting on Stephen Harper lecturing the head of NATO about how Russia, relations with Russia in the Arctic were good and how any NATO presence could create unnecessary tension. So behind closed doors, Stephen Harper understands there is no nation-state threat in the Arctic. There are non-state threats like smuggling, but there's no nation-state threat. The challenges are from non-state actors, and they're in terms of regulating environmental uh, protection and, and, and dealing with increased oil and gas interest and that kind of thing. So military vessels with guns, not so much. Hello, Michael. Nice to see you again. I'm Trevor Page. Um, I think you said that although you didn't have a count, there were 20 to 30 ships that had been through the Northwest Passage mm. um, this summer. I'm assuming that most of those were cargo vessels. Um, perhaps I'm wrong. But um, do you have any comment on uh, the increasing or the possibility of, well, not possibility, but does the trend give you any inkling on when and how serious the... Um, a threat is to the passage being used extensively by cargo and particularly by oil tankers. Yeah. Uh, there, there are a couple elements to my, to my response. Um, the first is that the majority of ships that are using the Northwest Passage at the moment are either government vessels, i.e. Coast Guard icebreakers, including the occasional American icebreaker, and we have an agreement with the United States about those. So they're not a threat to our sovereignty. Uh, and cruise ships. Um, occasional uh, commercial vessel, for instance, a, a cable-laying vessel, deep ocean cable-laying vessel, went from Hong Kong to, to the North Atlantic through the passage a couple of years ago. Uh, a giant uh, dry dock uh, was towed from these mobile dry docks was towed from northern Russia to the Bahamas through the Northwest Passage. Um, it's, it's not the time-sensitive stuff that's going through right now because there's still the risk of multi-year ice. And so in multi-year ice, you have to go very slow. Uh, so we're not seeing those big cargo ships yet, the big container vessels yet. Um, we're seeing a lot of traffic internal to Canada's Arctic, um, a lot of uh, barges going into uh, mining developments, uh, northern Baffin Island, the Mary River Project, big iron ore mine, uh, the area around Baker Lake, big gold mine, uranium mine. So there's heavy equipment, for instance, going into those places. Um, Hudson Strait's getting very, very busy 
just south of Baffin Island. Um, so yeah, there, there's there's more coming. Um, when the multi-year ice disappears, there will be a significant increase because all of a sudden the risk of putting a hole in your vessel will more or less disappear. Um, and let me just tell you one final thing in, in that connection. Um, all the ships that are coming right now are requesting Canada's permission because they need our help. They want us to know where they are in the event of an accident right? so we can provide search and rescue. Um, and that's good. And that, that you know, Long may that continue. But the, the interest in using these waters is increasing at such an exponential rate to the point where I was at a conference um, a few months ago with a number of, of executives of big Asian shipping companies who were very excited about the melting sea ice. You know, and they were talking about how many tens of billions of dollars a year they could save in terms of fuel and time. And I said, well, you know, have you heard about the other dangers of Arctic shipping? Not, not sea ice, but have you, for instance, heard about icing? You know, where you get an Arctic gale, winds of 50 knots and a big swell of maybe 20 or 25 feet and a lot of spray, and the air temperature is minus 10 or minus 20 degrees Celsius. And all that spray freezes on the superstructure of your container ship on top of all those containers, and all of a sudden, over she goes. And they looked at me, and their eyes got really big. I said, well, yeah, you're going to need the coastal state. Right? I mean, it's not just an issue as to whether or not it's a so-called international strait that you're allowed to sail through without permission or whether it's internal waters like Canada. Because you're going to need us at a non-legal sort of level to provide ports of refuge, to provide weather forecasting, really good weather forecasting, to, to provide search and rescue, to provide good charts. I mean, all the things that are necessary for, for safe shipping. And they nodded, and they went, okay, who do we talk to in Ottawa about doing public-private partnerships to build infrastructure along the Northwest Passage? Right? And I just looked at them and went, wow. I mean, I'm generally thought of as being out there in terms of Canadian Arctic policy, like way beyond government in, in terms of trying to scope out future challenges and, and, and solutions. And I hadn't thought of this. I looked at them and said, I don't know who in Ottawa could even begin to have a conversation on this. But you know what? I'll find out. Um, the future is going to be significantly, dramatically different from the present um, in the Arctic. And, and I'm talking about the future in just 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and, and as a country, we need to understand that and understand that we can either stand on the sidelines and pretend to be, you know a country that's long and thin like Chile huddled along the U.S. border, or we can step up to the challenge and opportunity of being the second largest country on Earth. Yes, please. Uh, hello, Michael. My, my name is John Warren. Um, I was interested in your comments about the dew line and the fact that uh, some of those stations are still manned. And... Comparing that with Prime Minister Harper's um, suggestion that there's no threat from a nation state, how do those two uh, statements come together? <laughs> there is no danger of the United States annexing Canadian territory um, because they can get what they want out of it already. Um, 
especially if they build Keystone XL. Um, look, I'm not, I'm not happy about the, um, the very significant amount of, of, of American activity in Canada's Arctic. Um, I know that U.S. submarines go through both the Northwest Passage and through Nars Strait up between Greenland and, and Ellesmere Island. I know that. I don't know whether they ask permission. Um, I'm not sure I want to know whether they ask permission because if they don't, we might have a problem. Um, I know that there are American personnel at, at least a couple of, uh, of, of radar stations, Cambridge Bay and uh, Hall Beach. Um, I know that because I hear American accents in the communities close to those bases, and I see trucks with U.S. Air Force on the back. Um, I know that there are acoustic um, uh, systems um, on the bottom of the ocean in the choke points because Canadian Coast Guard officers have helped to lay those American acoustic devices. Um, and I know that, for instance, in 2006, when the Harper government renegotiated the uh, NORAD agreement, the North American Aerospace Defense Command agreement, they expanded the agreement to include the sharing of maritime surveillance and that that included the Northwest Passage. So, yeah, I'm not happy about, about any of that. Um, but at the same time, um, pragmatically, I can say, well, all this cooperation is a reason why the United States should work with Canada on things like our jurisdiction over the Northwest Passage. Uh, instead of treating us as an opponent in this instance, they should say, well, actually... Um, having the Northwest Passage within the North American security perimeter would be a good thing for the United States. And so let's negotiate on how we legally distinguish the Northwest Passage from the Strait of Gibraltar or the Strait of Hormuz or the Strait of Malacca. And good lawyers can, can do that. Um, Paul Salucci, the former uh, U.S. ambassador to uh, Canada, uh, certainly recognized that, that U.S. interests were changing, um, expressed the view that the U.S. should actually change its position on the Northwest Passage, um, ask the State Department to, to re-examine the issue. Um, unfortunately, he, he didn't get anywhere, um, perhaps because he was representing a guy named George W. Bush, who had a little bit of trouble with diplomacy. Um, but, but the opportunity is still there. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very proud nationalistic Canadian, but I also at the same time recognize that uh, the United States is our best friend, whether we like it or not. And we are in a very close relationship, and we have to pragmatically move forward. Um, and, uh, you know, if I could start again uh, in 1993, I would not see Canada ratify NAFTA. Do I think we should rip up NAFTA today? I'm not sure. You know, again, you deal with the circumstances you're in. The Americans are in our Arctic but they're recognizing, with the exception of the Northwest Passage, recognizing our full sovereignty and are, are cooperating with us. Eric, Dr. Uh, Williams. My name is Eric Williams, yes. Um, thank you very much for your talk, Michael. I was wondering if you could give us a summary of what the present state of the Inuit communities are in the, in the Arctic North and also what you project and hope to project for the future of the Inuits. Thank you. Um, it depends a lot on which community uh, you go to. Um, 
Igluluk. Uh, I was in Igluluk five years ago. This is um, the community that uh, that that has a film production uh, company that won the Palme d'Or at, at Cannes for Fast Runner. Extraordinary film. If you, <laughs> if you really want to see a truly extraordinary film from a totally different culture, um, Fast Runner is the, the one to see. Um, I was in Iglulik, and there were 10 full dog teams in the town, which is indicative of people wanting to maintain that connection with their traditional way of life. It was a happy community. Houses were freshly painted. Um, at the same time, a few weeks earlier, I'd been in Kugluktuk, which used to be called Coppermine in, in western Nunavut. And they had had 15 suicides in the previous 12 months. This is in a community of 1,500 people. 15 teenage boys had taken their own lives. It was a profoundly unhappy community. There wasn't a single dog team in the town. They'd lost their connection. Um, so it depends on, on which community you go. <laughs> you have communities um, in uh, the uh, sort of central Canadian Arctic which are, how do I say this, um, evangelical Christian communities. Um, it's strange. You know, you go from one community to another, and, and it's, it's, like, it's like going from secular Quebec to southern Alberta, <laughs> right? Just, just religiously. Um, and, 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 and so there's that. But, but the, the one thing that, that, that sort of unites um, all of, of not just the Canadian Arctic, but, but all of indigenous Canada are the appalling um, conditions in terms of, of, of social conditions, health care, education. So in, in Nunavut, only 25% of kids graduate from high school. Um, and the Inuit are relatively well off compared to many of the First Nations in northern Canada who don't get the amount of publicity and the attention that, that they deserve. Um, just the amount of government funding, federal government funding for First Nations per child is thousands of dollars a year less than what any province spends on per child education. Um, endemic tuberculosis, 40% diabetes rate, and it just goes on and on. And I often get into discussions with um, with civil servants and politicians about these things, and they say, well, you know, it's expensive. I look at them and I go, yeah, none of it. Yeah, that's expensive. One-fifth of Canadian territory, 30,000 people. And you're reluctant to spend another 100 or $200 million a year, right, to deal with these challenges. Because like, that's what they quibble about. They nickel and dime a couple hundred million dollars a year because they say it's only 30,000 people. It's very expensive to operate there. I look at them and I say, okay, in that case, why don't you put none of it up on eBay? Right? Why don't you put the Canadian Arctic up on eBay and see how many trillions of dollars the Chinese would pay for it? Right? Because they would recognize the opportunity and they would recognize that these challenges like healthcare and housing and education are small prices to pay for the massive opportunities that that exist. And and we only nickel and dime the Arctic and our indigenous people because we don't have the imagination to see what these places and these people could do for us if we were to raise our game 
by several levels and, and embrace the possibilities. And the possibilities include working with these indigenous people who don't want to live in a zoo. They don't want to be stuck in a traditional way of life, but they don't want to have all these social and health problems either. They want to be masters of their own destiny, working with industry, working with southern governments, having a highly educated population that, that's healthy and well-housed. You'll have the last question. Hi, Michael. Hi. Thank you for your talk. Looks like Cameron's on his way to being a good photographer. <laughs> Since you talked about the value of the North, um, my question is about Canadian sovereignty and the measurements that were being done on the intercontinental shelf to determine what is Canada, what is Denmark, what is Russia, etc., USSR. So can you please give us what knowledge you may have about how we're doing in that regard? Like, um, is mm -hmm. Hans Island going to be uh, Canadian? Is it going to be Danish? Like, what, what did you find out on your research trip? Oh, you're asking questions that go far beyond that Arctic cruise. Um, <laughs> Hans Island is easy. Um, it's only 1.3 square kilometers. Um, and the dispute is with Denmark, um, our largest provider of small plastic um, toy blocks. Um, and my son Cameron's done a wonderful slide of Hans Island that shows the dispute with the, the, the two ends to the maritime boundary that we agreed that we negotiated back in 1973 to the low water mark on the south side of Hans Island, continuing from the low water mark on the north side. He shows that traditional map, and then the next slide he shows has a dot, dotted line connecting the two points and I've showed this to the Canadian foreign minister. I've shown it to the Danish ambassador. They've taken Cameron's advice and are negotiating um, actively right now, presumably in a fine hotel in some um, safe third place like Paris. Um, so Hans Island is not an issue. The Beaufort Sea is uh, more problematic um, because it's several thousand um, square miles of potentially oil and gas rich area. Um, but that dispute is also susceptible to negotiation. Um, and there's an interesting story to, to be told there. Uh, I was actually in Calgary yesterday presenting on that dispute, the Beaufort Sea dispute, to the National Energy Board because we're this close to a solution. We're negotiating with the United States. And, and if we can just agree on the scientific data, we'll have a deal within the next year. Um, and, and what, again, I mentioned NAFTA already. The one thing that's actually facilitating that is that Ironically, we're in a common energy market under Chapter 6 of NAFTA, so it really doesn't matter so much where the line goes in terms of oil companies having access to, to resources. I swallow hard when I say that because I don't really, really don't like Chapter 6 in any other way. Um, but there you have it. Uh, the, this, the question you're asking about Russian uh, and Danish uh, claims uh, concerns another issue, which is... Um, the fact that uh, under the United Nations law, the Sea Convention, countries can have sovereign rights over seabed more than the regular 200 miles from shore, but only if they can demonstrate scientifically that the seabed is a natural prolongation of, of the continental shelf closer to shore, and, and it's a science-driven question. And um, all the Arctic countries are cooperating right now. So for the last four summers, uh, a U.S. and a Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker have been mapping together uh, off of uh, uh, northern Alaska and, and northern Canada, um, 
working together because you need one ship to break ice while the other collects data with sensitive instruments uh, that, that can be disrupted by the sound of breaking ice or the vibration. Um, the Russians are cooperating. Our diplomats are meeting regularly with their diplomats and Danish diplomats to scope out possible solutions. We're sharing scientific data. Once we get a full scientific picture, um, we will either send uh, all that data off to a, a special uh, body of scientists called the United Nations Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, or we'll simply go ahead and negotiate boundaries in the Central Arctic Ocean. And that's actually my next big project. Um, right now, with one of my PhD students, I'm writing a paper on that Central Arctic Ocean issue, and we are bringing the leading Russian and Danish and Canadian experts together for three days in March uh, as kind of a, a parallel, unofficial uh, negotiation, uh, parallel to, to the official talks that are taking place. Um, and I'll, I'll just close by saying that um, uh, I was in Moscow a little over a year ago for a Arctic conference where one of the other speakers was a guy named Vladimir Putin, um, who reminded me of kind of a smaller, fitter, meaner version of Stephen Harper. <laughs> smaller and fitter, definitely possible. And probably meaner because I have not heard of any journalists disappearing in Canada lately. <laughs> and journalists disappear with some regularity in, in Russia. Um, but, uh, but Putin, who I who I don't really trust, said something really important. He said, you know, the, the future of the Arctic is cooperation. He actually said, if you stand alone in the Arctic, you do not survive. And it became very clear that Mr. Putin's Arctic policy is driven on cooperation with other countries, other Arctic countries, because he and his experts have done the calculations. 20% of Russia's GDP comes from Arctic oil and gas, and the only way that they can maintain and grow that is with Western capital and Western technology. It's a purely pragmatic decision. The Russians want to cooperate because they need to make money. Now, like I said, I don't trust Putin. I don't like Putin, right? But cooperation strikes me as a really good thing. The Russians are not a threat because they're a country in decline that desperately needs to make money through cooperation. And that has to be a good thing. When you're talking about a nuclear weapon country with which we had a cold war for four decades. So the, 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 you can find some pretty significant silver linings to the big dark clouds that, that, that cover Arctic policy. Climate change is a big dark cloud. Right? Um, political suspicions create clouds. Um, but it, it's not impossible to be optimistic. Uh, and, and this trend towards cooperation, I'll just close with saying this, is something that, that we should not only celebrate, but we should ensure it continues. And ensuring it continues starts in Ottawa and by insisting that our own elected representatives get the message. That we don't buy it when Peter McKay gets all hot under the collar about Russian bombers in international airspace. That we don't simply buy it. That what we want to see is more science, more diplomacy, more cooperation, please. Thank you.